And uh, if any children are here, kindergarten or first graders who'd like to go to children's church during the sermon, they are welcome to do that. Uh, As the children are going to children's church, I'd invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 19. It's on page 190 in the Pew Bible. Before we read our text this morning, I'd like to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Heavenly Father, on this 4th of July weekend, we come before you to intercede specifically for our nation. And Lord, we want to come before you and thank you for this great country. Lord, thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy. Thank you, Lord, for the heritage of freedom that we've known in this country and that has been projected uh, throughout the world, Lord. Thank you for the freedom of speech. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom of religion. Thank you for the freedom of assembly. God, we thank you that we can go down to a street corner in Boston and talk about the name of Jesus. And while we may be ridiculed, while we may be ignored, we will not be arrested. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, for the people who've died to defend those freedoms. Lord, thank you for men and women who are serving around the world today. And Lord, I pray for our uh, families here in this church who may have uh, service men and women in harm's way today. God, we pray that you protect them and watch over them and bless them. Lord, we not only thank you for the heritage of freedom that you've given us, but God, we want to give you the thanks for the spiritual, spiritual heritage of this nation. Lord, from the Puritans to the Pilgrims to our founding fathers who overwhelmingly looked to Christ and to the Bible for their guidance. Lord, we just thank you for that spiritual heritage in this nation, which is so unique. And God, we, we pray that even though America seems in many ways to have turned from that heritage, Lord, we thank you that there is still a residual echo of it in our nation and our laws and the way we conduct ourselves. And so, Lord, we thank you for that as well. And Lord, as we think about this country, we do pray that you would restore your blessing to this country by bringing about a spiritual awakening. Lord, we pray for the church in America, that you would awaken it from slumber, from complacency and materialism. Lord, we pray that the church would not abandon the gospel, that the church would not abandon Christ. Lord, we pray, make your church in America come back to the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the missionary heritage that you have given the church in this country, Lord. Thank you for uh, the way that as as the modern missions movement began in the 19th and 20th centuries, Lord, how you've sent so many missionaries from this place. And Lord, we pray that you would renew that again. God, we pray for uh, uh, the church in America to be a bold, clear, and loving witness. We pray for ourselves as Christians that we would be the best U.S. citizens. That, Lord, our, our love for you would compel us to, to uphold the laws of the land and to serve others. And, Lord, we pray that our citizenship would commend the gospel to others. And so, Lord, help us to show your light by, by being good neighbors to those around us. And, Lord, we pray again that another revival would come to America. You have been pleased in past centuries to send a great tidal wave of the gospel to splash onto these shores And Lord, we pray that you would do it again. And we pray all these things, Lord, not for our own comfort, 
not for our own happiness or prosperity. But Lord, we pray these things for the sake of Jesus' glory, that His name would be honored here in this country again, Lord. And so, God, we lift these things up to You. God bless America, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19 is our text today. It's on page 190 in the Pew Bible. And as I was walking up to the church this morning, uh, Pete, who you met earlier, uh, gave me an encouraging word as I was getting ready to preach this. He he came alongside me and he said, Dude, what are you going to say about this? So, yeah, it's one of those texts. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 1 to 13. Let me read the passage. It says, When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land He is giving you, and when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities centrally located in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Build roads to them and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance so that anyone who kills a man may flee there. This is the rule concerning the man who kills another and flees there to save his life. One who kills his neighbor unintentionally without malice aforethought. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and he swings his axe to fell a tree and the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he is not deserving of death since he did that to his neighbor without malice aforethought. This is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory as He promised on oath to your forefathers and gives you the whole land He promised them, because you carefully follow all the laws I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk always in His ways, then you are to set aside three more cities. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, and so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. But if a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, assaults and kills him, and then flees to one of these cities, the elders of his town shall send for him and bring him back from the city and hand him over to the avenger of blood to die. Show him no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. Whenever you uh, come to a biblical passage, you could say that there's sort of two general questions you want to ask of the biblical passage. And the first question you want to ask is, what does it mean? In other words, what is the passage trying to say? How do I understand it? What's its point? And then the second question you want to ask in light of that is, okay, then what does that mean for us or for me? That's the question of application. So you want to interpret the passage What does it mean? And then try to apply it. Therefore, what is God saying to us? And I have to say with Deuteronomy 19, both of those questions are very challenging. You know, what does it say? This is a hard passage to understand. I mean, there seems to be something about cities and people killing each other accidentally. And then there's an avenger of blood. I mean, what is that? So so it's a difficult passage to understand. And then even more difficult is what does it mean for us? Like, what are we supposed to do with this? Are we supposed to establish cities of refuge on the south shore of Boston? What, what do we do with this as a church? 
So, so there's just lots of challenges with a text like this. You know, no wonder Pete said to me, dude, what are you going to do with this passage? Because it's a challenging text. So, so let me just kind of do those two things. Let's try as best we can to understand what this passage is saying, why it's here, and then secondly, what it is that God has to say to us through his word, because it is the word of God. So, so first of all, what is this text about? And, and as I just said, it's, it's fundamentally a command to establish within Israel certain cities that a person can flee to, and these have commonly been called cities of refuge. So, for instance, back in chapter 19, verse 1, it says, When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he's given you, and you've driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, so in other words, once you get into the promised land, Israel, then set aside for yourselves three cities centrally located in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Build roads to them and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So once Israel got in the promised land, if you can kind of follow this, they were to sort of take the land, divide it into three sections, pick a central city in each of those sections, designate it as one of these three cities, and then make sure the roads going there are clearly marked, the roads are well taken care of, so that anyone can get to these cities quickly if they need to. In fact, down in verses 8 through 10, we, or 8 to 9, we see that eventually there's going to be six cities. He says in verse 8, If the Lord your God enlarges your territories, He promised, then the end of verse 9, you are to set aside three more cities. So eventually, you know, the, the plan is once Israel is fully built out, so to speak, once they've occupied all the land, there should be six cities, three on the east side of the Jordan River, three on the west side of the Jordan River, centrally located, clear roads leading to all of them, easy to find, direct. So, so that's the command. Why? What are these cities for? Well, verse 3, so that anyone who kills a man may flee there. So if you kill someone, you can run there. What? What is that talking about? Well, there's more detail in verse 4. This is the rule concerning the man who kills another and flees there to save his life, one who kills his neighbor unintentionally without malice aforethought. Ah, it's coming a little bit clearer. So these are cities, in case you accidentally kill somebody, you can run there to save your life. Uh, so, so, so we're talking about accidental, unintentional taking of life. In other words, you know, the Bible distinguishes between killing and murder. Those are different concepts. You know, sometimes people quote the Ten Commandments and they say, thou shalt not kill. That's not what it says. It says, thou shalt not murder. There's a difference between those two. It's possible to take a life without it being murder. You're like, what do you mean? Well, you know, an accidental killing. Well, like what? Well, verse 5. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off. You know, hence our term, don't fly off the handle. Right? Right? Don't let it fly off the handle. So it is, whoop, and there goes the axe head, and, and somebody is in the wrong place at the wrong time. If it flies off the handle, it hits his neighbor, he kills him. So, so there could be an accidental killing. There, uh, it, these things can happen. You know, remember Israel, you've got to always try to go back in time whenever you read these and try to imagine life in those days. You're talking a very agrarian, manual labor-focused society using tools that are handmade. And this is not the, the good stuff from Home Depot or whatever. I mean, it's like you make your own axe. You make your own rope. Things break. 
Some of you here have worked in construction. Some of you here have worked in manufacturing or run heavy equipment or been in the military. And you know that rule number one is safety. It's important because you can get hurt accidentally. Accidents happen. When we were uh, last fall in the early phases of our construction project here, when they were still doing a lot of the site work and laying the foundations and putting the steel up, there were were just a lot of big machines driving around. And that's when I learned a new phrase I'd never heard before because construction is not my background. The phrase is heads on swivels. That means your head has, when you're walking through a construction site, should always be on a swivel, you know. Because things happen. Trucks back up. You have to be careful. So, so that's kind of the, the context you're imagining here is a very manual labor intensive agrarian society with homemade tools. Anyway, things can happen. And so if that happens, should there, God forbid, be an accident where you kill somebody unintentionally, you flee, you run to one of these six cities so that you can, as it says in verse 5, the guy can save his life. Well, save his life from what? I mean, why does he have to run to the city? What is it that he's in danger of? Well, verse 6, the answer is he's in danger of the avenger of blood. Look at verse 6. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he's not deserving of death since he did this to his neighbor without malice aforethought. So the avenger of blood, what's that? You know, when I hear the word avenger, you know, I think comic books, I think Captain America, you know, the Avengers, I think Iron Man, you know. Like what avenger? Like what's an avenger of blood? Well, there's different sort of uh ta- we, the bottom line answer is we don't know for sure who this is. There's a couple sort of different scholarly kind of trajectories you could go in interpreting this. One is that some scholars have hypothesized that this is some kind of designee within the community whose job it is, kind of like a law enforcement official, to make sure that that if a crime happens, a punishment ensues, that if someone did something, they're tracked down and they're brought to justice. And so that's one idea. Uh, The other way to interpret this is that perhaps this is some family member who has a kind of family responsibility to advocate for justice so that if your brother is killed, you're the avenger of blood, you have to go and make sure that that person is caught and brought to justice. I I tend to lean toward that latter interpretation uh, for a couple reasons. One is, interestingly, see that word avenger, the avenger of blood? That's the same word that's translated most other places in, in the Hebrew Bible as redeemer. So it's actually a redeemer of blood. It's it's somebody, it, it, and that makes me think of the kinsman redeemer. So maybe it's something like that. You know, there was this role within Israel in your family that, that you were a kinsman redeemer. You had to look out for your kinsmen and help them in difficult situations. For instance, if your brother has a wife and you haven't had any kids and the brother dies, it was your responsibility as a kinsman redeemer to marry that woman to make sure that the family life line lived on. Isn't that a great thought? Get to marry your sister-in-law. Woo! Yeah, so uh, anyway, it's a tough job. Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to be the kinsman redeemer. But the idea was your family line would live on. Your brother's name, the name of your family would, would continue. And so, so it, was, it was about taking responsibility for your family and standing up for them. It's possible that, it's possible that this avenger of blood is a similar family role of defending the rights of, of your family. Another reason I kind of 
tip toward that interpretation is because of what it says in verse 6. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him and kill him. That doesn't sound as much like a sheriff to me as it does a family member trying to avenge the death of his other family member. So I think that's, that's why I kind of say it's probably more likely what's going on here. You know, you've got to remember, what was it, again, what was it like back then? You know, if someone commits a crime against you or your family, what do you do? You pick up the phone, you dial 911. We have 911. <laughs> we have phones. It's amazing. We, we have a highly developed law enforcement system. While not perfect, is really amazing. We have local police, we have detectives, we have state police, we have federal police, we, we, we have lawyers, we have a whole system of, uh, a legal system of lawyers and judges. I mean, it's amazing apparatus. Back then, they didn't have that. So if somebody committed a crime against your family, how was that going, how was justice going to be done? How was sin going to be accounted for? How, how would, would rights, uh, wrongs be made right? And the answer was, in, in part, you had to advocate for yourself. And so the idea here is perhaps that a, a redeemer of blood is going to advocate for the rights of his family and he's going to chase a person down and bring them to justice and p- possibly kill him. Um, I don't know, some of you saw this movie last year that came out. A fantastic movie. It's called True Grit, which was actually a remake of an older original True Grit and they, they remade it and just some really fine uh, filmmaking there. But if, if you don't know the story, it's set in the old American West and it's about this 14-year-old girl named Maddie Ross. And Maddie Ross comes to this old western frontier town because she is seeking justice. Her father was killed by a hired hand, and the hired hand has fled to the frontiers, and he's hiding out in sort of, you know, no man's land, the lawless land where there isn't a sheriff and things are kind of wild and, you know, the wild, wild west. And, and so she, she's this spunky spitball of a 14-year-old girl with true grit, who, who is going to capture the man who killed her father so that justice is done, so that rights, you know, wrongs are set right, so that sin is accounted for. And so that's kind of, the, you know, the premise of the story. And in a sense, you could say she's an avenger of blood. She's going out there to make sure that somebody doesn't get away with it. And, and so here this, we have a basic biblical concept, a, a basic biblical principle, that in God's moral universe... Sin must be accounted for. That's how it is in God's universe. God accounts for sin. Maybe not right away, but hopefully in the end, that all sin will be accounted for one way or another. God doesn't let any of it go away. All things are brought to light. Whatever is hidden will be brought to the light. Justice will be done. And that implies, and that means, you know, in the case of murder, that if a life is is taken, a life must be taken to satisfy justice. That this is the basic concept. You know, it's this idea of lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Basic recompense and justice is demanded. And so if someone kills your family member, that has to be answered some way. The problem in this case, going back to Deuteronomy 19, is that the person who killed them didn't mean to do it. There was no anger. There was no intention. It was just one of those things. You know, the axe head flew off the handle. It didn't mean to do it. And so in this circumstance, the person is not deserving of death. But he's in danger of being killed. 
So that's why, now to kind of pull the whole thing together, you have to have these cities. There has to be some way for a person in that situation to get to safety in order to protect their life. And so that's why you need three cities. They need to be spread out. They need to be equidistant. The roads need to be clear, well-maintained, so that anyone in any circumstance, when that happens, can get on their mule or run or whatever they do, get in their chariot and just hightail it to the nearest city without it being a five-day journey where they might get overtaken by pursuers. So you see the basic logic of it. So, so what it does then, basically, is this law protects the innocent. It protects a person who does not deserve to die from death. It, it protects the avenger of blood from committing an act which would be unjust. It, it, it allows time and space for due process and investigation to happen. Presumably, if the person goes to the city of refuge, they're going to be able to then bring him back and have a trial and find out the facts of the case. Isn't it, it's just interesting as I read through this, I just think of how many kind of basic legal principles that we take for granted in our legal system, you find here in this text from, you know, 3,000 years ago. And it, again, shows sort of the Judeo-Christian heritage and how influential that was in shaping our understanding of law. You know, the idea of due process, the idea of intention, um, and all these things. Just kind of interesting. But notice something else. And this, this is maybe a little harder for us to get our minds around. The cities of refuge not only protected the life of the innocent individual, they also protected the entire people of Israel from corporate responsibility and guilt if that innocent person were killed as they were running away. Check it out. Look at verse 10. Do this, in other words, set up these cities, so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land. In other words, the guy who's running for his life because he accidentally killed someone which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, and here we go, so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. So can you follow the logic? If a guy kills someone accidentally, and he's running, and someone chases him down and kills him, even though he doesn't deserve to die, and Israel has not set up any cities of refuge, then in a sense the whole people are also culpable for that bloodshed, because they didn't put anything in place to protect that guy. So, so in other words, there's this idea of individual responsibility, which we need to emphasize. In fact, how much better would our, our country be today if we all took more individual responsibility? There's too little individual responsibility taken. But there's also an idea of corporate responsibility, that, that we as a whole people have a responsibility to structure our society in a way that protects vulnerable people that protects those who, who are fleeing, protects those whose lives are in danger, and, and they're innocent, right? And, and so w w whether it's a system of due process, it, it's just so important to uphold those in our courts. It's important that, that countries and people uphold justice not only by holding people accountable for their actions, but also by creating a context in which those who are innocent and vulnerable can be safe and protected. You know, I think about that in our own country and how important that is. And you know, one, one of the glare, as I was reading this and thinking about taking life and protecting the innocent, and as you know, as I was praying about our country here on the Fourth of July weekend, I, I just couldn't help but but think about one of the real issues in our country today, which is the protection of unborn life. You know, these are human beings who just happen not to be birthed yet. But they're humans. 
They have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But, but, but they're not protected. You know, there's no city of refuge for them. And so, yeah, everyone's responsible for their actions. You know, we're responsible for our, our sexual actions and the consequences that come from that. But we're also kind of responsible as a, a nation for, for not protecting those lives and, and for not having laws that, that shield them. And so there's a corporate responsibility as well. So God's justice, the kind of justice God wanted for Israel and the kind of justice God wants for human societies is one that holds people accountable but also protects the rights and the lives of the vulnerable and the innocent. But what if, you might say, well, what if you have set up these cities and and someone flees there but they actually are guilty? Well, that's verse 11. If a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, assaults and kills him, and then flees to one of these cities... The elders of his town shall send for him, bring him back from the city, and hand him over to the avenger of blood to die. Show him no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding of innocent blood so that it may go well with you. So so if Israel doesn't protect the innocent fugitive, it's guilty of bloodshed. And if Israel fails to punish the guilty person, it's guilty of bloodshed. So so there's kind of the two sides of the coin of justice. There's what's called uh, retributive justice, retribution, giving, punishing crime for what it is, sin accounted for. But there's also the idea of justice in the sense of protection of rights in the innocent. And and so we see both of these sides of, of the coin of justice that must be present within a society. And God calls for both of them within Israel. And it certainly would be true of any society that would seek to uphold justice that both the accounting for crime and sin, but also the protection of the vulnerable would be both parts of that. So what then do we as Christians do with a text like this? I mean, certainly there's applications for society in here and for human cultures and how we organize ourselves in a, in a nation or a people. But, but what about for us as New Covenant Christians? This is the Old Covenant under Moses. We live under the New Covenant under Christ. And as we know, the New Covenant under Christ is different, Right? Uh, in the new covenant under Christ, uh, we don't, as Christians, as a church, have the power of the state to enforce justice. So under the old covenant, the power to enforce justice and the power of the sword, so to speak, was given to the people of God so that Israel as a nation and Israel's God's people were the same thing. But under the new covenant, the church is not the same as the state. There is a separation of church and state in the sense that God has given certain responsibilities to the state and certain responsibilities to the church. In fact, the church lives among all the nations of the world. The church is not any particular culture or nation. You know, there's not really ultimately an American church or a Nigerian church or a you know, Brazilian church. There's just the church of God that exists in all these different cultures and places. It's, it's transnational in nature. Uh, this country has a wonderful spiritual heritage, but this is not God's country. God doesn't have a country. He does. It's called heaven. It's called the new heavens, the new earth. And, and so, so as the church is sort of spread out among the nations, we don't have a calling upon us to take up the sword and establish righteousness. We certainly must speak out. We must have a prophetic voice, but we don't have the the sword of the king in our hand to go out and make sure that happens. It's part of what it means to live now between the first and second comings of Christ. So so what then, back to that question, what does this mean for us? What do we do with this thing in the cities of refuge? Well, let me just suggest 
that there are some themes here in Deuteronomy 19 that reappear in the New Testament. And I want to suggest that they reappear in surprisingly an intensified form. That some of the themes here in Deuteronomy 19 come back in the teaching of Jesus and the apostles in a heightened, deepened, enlarged, intensified manner. So in some ways, we look at Deuteronomy 19 and we say, well, that's a different kind of context that doesn't apply today. But in other ways, it's like the New Testament is even more intense than Deuteronomy 19. So let me just just kind of wrap things up here by quickly suggesting three ways, three principles or three themes here in Deuteronomy 19 that we find again in the New Testament, but way more intense. All right. And here's the first one. The theme of sin and guilt and responsibility for your actions is way more intense in the New Testament. Do this. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, chapter 5, page 959. Matthew chapter 5, page 959. Verse 21, Matthew 5, 21. Jesus in his famous Sermon on the Mount. So first of all, sin and guilt and responsibility are deepened in the New Testament. Jesus says in Matthew 5.21, You have heard it said long ago, do not murder. And anyone who, be, who murders will be subject to judgment. Yep, we just read that. Yep, we, that's in the Bible. But, he says, I tell you, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which is an Aramaic insult, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I, I'm going to be honest and tell you that while driving in traffic in Boston, <laughs> I, I may have said worse than you fool. You know with malice and resentment toward everyone else who's a crazy driver while I'm completely sane. Uh, you know, it's, it's like Jesus wants to, he wants to push the issue deeper into the heart. Jesus wants to go into the heart. You know, it's, it's not just have you ever committed the act of murder, but it's where's your attitude and where are your words and what's in your heart? All of that matters to God. You know, have, have you ever heard that where someone you know, says, I'm a good person, I've never murdered anybody? Well, do you think you're going to heaven? Well, I, I think so. I've made my mistakes, but hey, I've never murdered anybody. <laughs> and Jesus is like, have you called someone a fool? Have you hated somebody? Have you been filled up with rage? What kind of thoughts have you had? And so Christ not only wants to look at the fully ripened fruit of anger, he wants to trace the root back down into the heart and say, what is your heart like? Same thing with just another, for instance, adultery. Look at verse 27. Jump down a few verses. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And perhaps some of us here can say, yep, I've never committed adultery. Great. Not so fast. Jesus, verse 28, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Christ wants to trace those things back down into the heart and show that it comes out of our heart. You know, committing adultery is not something that happens accidentally. It's not like tripping on the sidewalk it, it's something that starts in the heart and goes to the mind and thoughts and then comes into words and then actions and then is full grown. 
It's, it's a whole process that starts in the soul. And so that's why in Matthew 15, if you go to Matthew 15, verse 18, Jesus could talk about the heart as the seat of the uncleanness in our lives, the things that displease God. Matthew 15:18. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And they, these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. So in some ways, that's why I'm saying I think the themes of guilt and responsibility in the Old Testament are much more intense and uncomfortable in the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, I can be like, well, I never murdered anyone, so I guess I'm okay. In the New Testament, Christ wants to say, Jeremy, look deeper. Look at your attitude. Do you really love me? Have you loved me, Jeremy, with your whole heart? Like, no. <laughs> I have to admit, I've loved sin more than I've loved Jesus. And so I find myself more guilty in the New Testament than in the Old Testament in some ways. Or, or at least my understanding is deepened and I'm brought to, to sort of have no defense. Number two theme from Deuteronomy 19 is the theme of judgment. So the theme of sin is more intense. The theme of judgment is far more intense. In the Old Testament, who is the judge? Well, it's this guy, the redeemer of blood, whoever that was. But in the New Testament, the judge is God himself. The New Testament sort of starts highlighting this day of judgment that's still to come. And not where our lives will be taken, but where we'll be eternally judged in hell. You know, the, the New Testament speaks often of hell. You know, why do Christians believe in hell? It seems like such a negative doctrine. You know, there's a problem with giving up the doctrine of hell, though. And it's that Jesus taught it a lot. And the reason we as Christians believe in hell is because Jesus was the most clear, vivid constant teacher about hell jesus the man of love taught very graphically about a real coming judgment day and so we find this here too that you know wow i I almost want the judgment of the old testament that seems a lot lighter than the coming judgment of god look uh, for instance at matthew chapter 12 here jesus speaks about the judgment day he says in verse 36 of matthew 12 I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted and by your words you'll be condemned. If God were to replay the entire MP3 of everything that's come out of my mouth, would would I be acquitted of being a liar? Or would I be condemned and made guilt, found guilty of telling lies? If God were to replay the MP3 of my entire life speech, would I be guilty of gossip and slander and personal assassination with my words? Or would I be guilty? Would I be innocent or guilty? Would I be innocent of calling someone a fool or would I be guilty? You know, to be innocent, you have to have never done it. To be guilty, you just have to have done it once. And I think I have more than once. So what a thought that someday, again, God is going to account for every sin. God doesn't brush anything under the rug. Everything will be brought to light. All sin will be accounted for. 
And so that's why I say not only is our understanding of what guilt really is deepened and intensified in the New Testament, but the threat of the coming judgment is so much greater than anything we find in, in the Old Testament law about cities of refuge and things like that. What a terrifying judgment awaits us. Nobody can stand before God on their own two moral feet. But there's a third theme that comes from Deuteronomy 19 that I think is intensified in the New Testament. Not only is our understanding of sin and guilt intensified, not only is our understanding of judgment made much greater, but finally, the promise of a refuge blows us away. The refuge of the New Testament is overwhelming when compared to the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. Because in the New Testament, we have Jesus Christ, who is our refuge, who died for us. You know, one more passage in Matthew. Look at Matthew 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Here Jesus is talking to His disciples about how they shouldn't try to be first, but they should serve each other. And then He uses Himself as the ultimate example of service. He says in verse 28, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and how did Jesus serve? To give His life as a ransom for many. Christ was crucified, buried, and He rose again to give us a life as a ransom for me. This is the amazing thing. Jesus came to save sinners. You know, in the Old Covenant, the city of refuge is great if you're innocent. But if you're guilty, you're out of luck. But Christ has come so that the guilty could find refuge. So that those who don't have an excuse can find acquittal, can be forgiven. You know, Jesus was there on the cross and there's a thief hanging next to Him being punished for His crimes. And that thief in a kind of, you know, very baby form of faith says to Jesus, remember me. That's all He says. He doesn't even pray the sinner's prayer. He just says, remember me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. There was a refuge for the thief on the cross who was condemned and in the process of facing his death. Think of the Apostle Paul who was complicit in the martyrdom of Christians. The Apostle Paul had the blood of Christians on his hands. He was a murderer. By his own admission, he says, I was a murderer and a violent man. And the guy... The guy who helped kill Christians was afforded refuge and forgiveness by Christ. That's the refuge of the New Testament. That God can save even the most vile of us. And so no matter what your, your, your rap sheet is, have you have a rap sheet of failed marriages? Have, have you done time? Maybe you have a prison record. Maybe you've, you've got a real rap sheet. Maybe you've been part of an abortion. Maybe you've been a liar. Maybe you've made mistakes in your life. Maybe there's things in your life you're like, I'm so ashamed of that. Christ can forgive that. He died as a ransom for that. So I guess the main application I would have here is flee to Jesus. Get up. Do not stop. Do not take anything with you. It's like leaving the airplane when there's an emergency. Don't grab your stuff out of the overhead bin. Just go. Flee and run to Christ. No matter who you are, no matter what your past is, 
no matter how sordid it may be, you can today flee to the city of refuge in Christ. What are you waiting for? What else can God do for you that He's not already done in sending His Son? Don't think to yourself, ah, I'm old. People have been on my case about Jesus all my life. Eh, if, I, if, I, if I say yes now, everyone's going to look at me funny. Who cares? Don't let vanity keep you from eternal life. There's nothing worth it. You've you, you got you to go hard after Christ. He is the pearl of great price who's worth selling everything. He's the treasure buried in the field that's worth doing everything you can to get that field, to get that treasure. And He alone is the Savior. And so don't let anything stand in your way. Don't be like those people. You always hear about these people in the news who go on trial for something and they decline the public defender because they think they're smart enough to argue their own case. You know, when someone does that, you're like, oh man, that guy, he's out to lunch. He's going to lose. Don't be that guy. When it comes to God, don't think I can argue my own case. I'm fine. God has provided a defender. He's provided a refuge. And his name is Jesus. So flee to him. Maybe you do it right now in your pew. Maybe while you're sitting on the beach looking at the fireworks tonight. You don't have to do anything except just repent and trust in Christ. It's a, a, turn, a turn of the heart. Not a ritual or something you do. It's just your heart putting your faith in the Lord Jesus. And today his arms are open to receive anyone. The gates of the city of refuge stand wide open today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, even as we give thanks for our freedoms as Americans and for those who are here in this country, Lord, we want to give you thanks as Christians for freeing us from our sins, for freeing us from our guilt, for forgiving all of our our life of rebellion against You. Thank You, Jesus, that You forgive us, uh, even as Christians, when we continue to rebel, that Your ransom still is effective. Lord, thank You that no matter who we are, we can come to You. Lord, thank You that even if we're Christians who've wandered far, that You welcome us back if we'll just turn and repent. And so, Lord... Would you call us to yourself? Would you enable us to run? Would you give life to us and give strength to our legs so that we can run to Christ and give us hearts that seek him? Lord, we love you and we thank you for your salvation. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen.